My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at Robible.com. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you can find writing about video games over at comicbook.com. I am also joined by a person that has been on this podcast this year more than I thought he'd be, which has been an absolute delight. Uh, former Observer, Morning Brew, and The Wrap reporter, Brandon Katz. Don't worry, he's not unemployed. He's going to pop up somewhere <laughs> soon enough. Yeah, no, so I am joining a company called Parrot Analytics as an industry strategist. And long story short, I'm going to be using their proprietary data to help advise entertainment companies on what to buy, what to invest in, what to be developing, what type of marketing campaigns to put on that. You know, should they send this to streaming, linear, cable, whatever. So essentially moving deeper into the entertainment industry than I was as a reporter. Dude, I didn't realize it was that uh, back channel-esque. I thought that you were still going to be in some sort of front-facing role. So I'll still be doing a lot. I'll still be able to create content around entertainment industry narratives, which is, you know, what we've been doing. But this allows me to kind of take a lot of those skills and translate it to a a slightly different perspective, which is a little bit more on the client uh, facing kind of uh, approach. I'm still going to be, you know, popping up on podcasts and like writing new types of articles just from a different perspective. And, you know, this sets me up to potentially work at a studio down the line, maybe. Well, if you ever talk to the guys at Warner Bros who (laughs) apparently cannot find someone to run DC to save their lives, tell them that you know a guy. Like, listen, this guy's got a great Batman script just sitting there waiting. It's It's called Bruce. It's dark and gritty. I don't know if you've heard about that before. Sounds like a really fresh take on the material. All right, y'all. So make sure that you follow B at great underscore Catsby for all his great work going forward in the future. It's always a pleasure to have him on the show. Thanks for having me back, you guys. Uh, Appreciate you letting me to intrude. No, no, dude. It's great, especially for House of the Dragon, which will be the main topic today, as you are sort of our resident maester. But before all that, we're going to talk about some updates that we've missed because we've kind of been on vacation. I just moved apartments. Brandon got a new job. Cade still lives in Iowa. So there's a lot of shit going on in our lives. <laughs> it's chaos over here in Iowa. There's so much porn. <laughs> All right, let's start quick. The Emmys are tonight. Any predictions or demands that y'all want to get off your chest? Is it I, Better Call Saul, Better Get Something, and that's about it? I, I Yeah, that's basically my, my thoughts is like, it's, I found out today, never won an Emmy. Insane. Like, what the fuck have they been doing? Like Diabolical. Yeah. Season five was an amazing season of television on its own, but now it's in the last stretch. I, I don't know if they have another chance at the Emmys next year. I think year they're going they to. It. I think that that was... So I, I don't think that that was the reason that they split right. season six and a half, but I think it was one of the unintended benefits of yeah. that. Yeah. So if they don't win tonight, I think there's a chance they come back next year. And I, I think whatever the case may be, it wins an Emmy this year or next year but uh if it doesn't crime against humanity straight <laughs> strong words what about you you know I, I obviously love to see ray seahorn get an emmy for a uh, better call Saul. she was actually the second ever interview i did as an oh, awesome reporter. yeah back in like 2014 2015 something like that right after the show premiered so uh it was cool talking to her uh, somewhat recently after the finale and you know having that full circle moment i let her know that she's like oh that's so cool and you know that was probably one of the first interviews i gave as an actress because you know i had been in not a, not a lot of popular things to that point so it's cool that that came forward but you know uh, i'm not super 
you know, stressed about the Emmys, like the way I do about the Oscars. That's not to say that television isn't as important as movies. That's not true at all. But, you know, I, I just, I don't get as emotionally invested in the Emmys as I do in the Oscars where I'm like, if this motherfucker doesn't win, I'm going to lose it. Go on a sure. Twitter tirade. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, know, I didn't even know that they were tonight until like today, today, you know? Yeah. So I think that both Bob and Rhea have a better chance next year than they do this year. That being said, I feel like the Emmys would be wildly boneheaded if they didn't crown what will likely be the final Breaking Bad universe entry. And so to miss that chance to me would be insane. And B, while you might have gotten to interview Rhea, I got her to say hits bong theory in a viral video. I so, did see that. that who's was really better at their jobs here, huh? From at Eric Italiano. Incoming Better Call Saul hits bong theory. Okay. What if Saul becomes the version we see in Breaking Bad because he remains a cartel lawyer to protect Kim's life? That is the price he pays for her safety. Like how Jesse was a meth cooking prisoner, but less literal chain. That's that's a good uh, bass guy writer. And Bob loved it. He was like, this is a great theory. I know. That was actually really cool. I'm not going to lie. As it should be, man. That was well-deserved. I uh, I was seeing where the crawdad sang with my girlfriend and her family, who I had just met for the first time. And my phone starts blowing up, but I keep looking. I keep looking. My girlfriend's like, would you put your fucking phone away? And I'm like, you don't understand. Bob Odenkirk thinks I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that is, you know, justifiable to break the social rules. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to D23, which was... I don't know, boys. What? What? I mean, I'm not a convention guy in the first place. I understand like the idea behind going to them, the idea behind holding them, but I don't like sit around and obsess over what they announce or don't announce. I think we only got two Marvel trailers, two Lucasfilm trailers. So let's start with the MCU. The first thing that I want to touch on is Wakanda Forever. We got some plot details. It will see the nation of Wakanda under attack from the world's nations who are attempting to steal their resources while the country finds itself at their lowest point. Feige says that this is the big quote, the biggest thing they've ever done, which is extremely vague and you could take. But like when you use the word big and Marvel Studios, what's the first thing that you think of? Endgame. Exactly. So that kind of comment is... Like, Feige's a smart guy. He knows what he's saying when he says that. Combine those two facts with the stunning trailer. Perhaps the best trailer I've seen this year. Where do you find yourself now? That's such an interesting comment. Like, he he knows better than to say something like that. You know, exactly. he's, he's a marketing guy, but he's not the kind of guy who throws that shit out into the ether and expects it to not come back and hit him in the face if it's not true. Um, So I didn't hear him say that, so that's actually really interesting. But... Uh, it seems like a very almost politically charged movie, you know, in, in some sense with the world nations trying to conquer Wakanda, almost like colonizing it or something like that's mm. very interesting. Um, and I think that that explains why Wakanda forever has seemed to sure. overtake Black Panther as the film's title. Right. Yes. Um, the, there's a lot of everything about this movie is fascinating because I think it has the best chance of being the most unique Marvel movie since like Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. And, and that's my if, favorite MCU film of all time. So you're talking my language right now. And I don't know if it will, you know, be that uniqueness that we want, but visually it's looking very impressive. Mm. Narratively, it's not uh, 
bad guy who is exactly like the protagonist steps in and he mm. has to fight him and at the end he dies or a blue laser shoots into the sky mm. there's like just a story being told and it's it's wrapped around this real life event with chadwick boseman's passing that is now intertwined into the actual story all of it is very fascinating and i'm very curious to see a it's also the end point of phase four what, four yeah so what does that mean? Why is that? Where? Why did they choose to end it there? Because it wasn't supposed to be, if you remember. It wasn't supposed to be the end, and now it is. So right. what does all that mean? I think he's probably not lying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say that if the rumors of Dr. Doom yeah. appearing in this are true, combined with the nation versus nation narrative, combined with the addressing of Chadwick Boseman's death, you can make a case for that being the quote-unquote biggest, in a very vague way, MCU film of all time. B? I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed <laughs> in the sense that King T'Challa opens up Wakanda to share the technology with the rest of the world and their resources. One of the first things we do is try to steal it from the country after they lose their monarch. Like, come on. Yeah, guys. that's so that's so unlike mankind. <laughs> come on. Like, guys, I know we suck in real life, but like, can't we at least try to be a little bit better in our fictional worlds to, that we create to distract us from how bad humanity is in real life? Damn it. But obviously that aside... Because you need some plot. Uh, but your real take is. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, if if any other franchise lost a star as bright as Chadwick Boseman and then had to narratively figure out how to do a sequel. Do, I'm hey, like, hold oh. on. Do you mean franchise in terms of the MCU or the Kool-Aid yeah, Black Panther? Okay. In terms of the MCU, if any other franchise, you know, I'd be like. I'm really down on this. Like, guys, I don't think they can pull this off. But Ryan Coogler has proven to be at a very young age, one of the best filmmakers, one of the best populist storytellers we have in Hollywood, one of the freshest voices in Hollywood. So if anyone can pull this off and really land it and, and deliver what is not only just like an emotional send off to a, a beloved person, but like a really, really, really good movie sequel, it's going to be him. And as we all said, not, nothing new. The trailer was just gorgeous in terms of Stunning. Uh, not only visual you know it was like a poem it was like a living exactly. poem well said i'm end it there don't need so, to say anything else i want to make two counter addendums to your points one i felt the same way before the trailer with all the leticia wright drama and right. the production stops and the task of overcoming bozeman's death and the MCU's general cold streak right now is like, oh, Wakanda forever, man. I don't know. I'm a fucking moron. First trailer. I, I've been watching it for two months straight. So that's first. Um, and then what else did you just say, B? Sorry, that, that was my... Humanity? ADD is a bitch. <laughs> I was literally thinking to myself, I was like, I have two points, but I'm going to forget one of them. I know it. Uh, all right. Well, so I was dead wrong. And now that I've seen the trailer... Everything that they've said and everything that I've heard seems to make me think that at a time where Marvel needs it, this could be another Best Picture-esque film. Maybe not in the actual Academy's eyes, but I'm fully prepared to like this film more than I liked the first one, which is a wild statement to say. I didn't care much for the first one, and I know it's kind of a hot take. It just never really grabbed me. Uh... Oh, I remembered. Speaking of Kugler, I saw a rumor today from Murphy's Multiverse that yes. he's a leading candidate to direct 
Secret Wars. B, this is something you tweeted pretty much as soon as Secret Wars was announced. Not to give you too much credit, I think that's a pretty widely held take. Yeah, it's like he it should feels be like a no-brainer, obvious. right? Yeah, he's a he's an unbelievably talented filmmaker, and I think you go through his films, even starting with Fruitvale Station, which was his feature directorial debut. He marries really, really, really nuanced uh, themes and and absolutely a political undercurrent through each of his uh, uh, films with very intrinsic character development. It's like so. When, when you have the villain of your movie in Black Panther literally meeting his inner child, but it actually isn't corny. It actually plays directly into the themes of the film. It's actually emotionally resonant because you are now a little bit on his side. It's just unbelievable how you can kind of blend those types of things with the greater uh, requirements of MCU world building. So for someone to step up into an Avengers level role, why wouldn't you give it to the guy who delivered the first ever best picture nomination for a superhero movie, a certified $100 billion, I mean, $1 billion hit, which is now the, I think, after Top Gun Maverick, I think it got pushed to the sixth highest grossing domestic movie of all time. And someone who, if you're talking about critically speaking, hasn't really missed in their feature career. Uh, mm. it, it just seems like he should be getting a larger voice at Marvel moving forward, if that's what he wants. Cade, sorry. No, no, you're completely fine. That was a good, good point. Um, it's interesting though, because like I would imagine if I was in his shoes right now making this movie, I would never want to make a Marvel movie ever again, just simply mm. because of the stress I'd be under yeah. at such a high level. It's it's one thing to try to make a sequel to a movie that big that people love so much. Uh, it's another to address all of the things tying around it. And it, then to be like, all right, now I'm going to go make probably the biggest movie that will ever be made. You know, <laughs> with right. with Secret Wars, um, if he does it, fucking awesome. Even though I don't love the first Black Panther movie, I love him, and I think he, mm. as a director, does a good job. And I would love to see him be given the reins to kind of just do his thing on that big of a scale. That would just be in- insane. And, and we are you allowed to that. do your own thing at that big of a scale? Probably not. Like, he's, <laughs> yeah. he, I don't, it, this is a heart, like a strong word, like a tour kind of thing. Uh-huh. Like he, he kind of is. Uh, and I don't know if you can do that with a movie. that's probably gonna have like a budget of $1 billion, but, uh, but they've allowed filmmakers to put their, their touches and flourishes yeah. on recent entries. If not, you know, they're, they're never going to relinquish complete secret wars. It's going to have 50 characters to probably, to probably more than that, but he could probably put his own spin on it and do, I would say certain narrative things that, you know, beef up, I think, the severity of the content beyond just like, ooh, you know, Fighter X is fighting Fighter Y, and they're both yeah. my favorites. <laughs> to uh, Marvel's credit, I, I, I know people slam them all for being the same or whatever, but I really do think there's a distinction between the Russo Brothers Avengers movies and Joss Whedon Avengers movies and, and everything in between. I can tell what a Russo Brothers event or Marvel movie is for better or worse. Some people have their quip. Well, what would you say are, are the Russo's touches on Endgame? Like, is it definable whatsoever? I, I, I really don't think it is. And I think that they are an important piece in the MCU story. Yeah. And I think that they are competent filmmakers. Yeah. But, but Cherry and, um, and, the uh, man. And the gray man have shown that, you know, without cap, 
They're yeah. kind of mid. And I no, say I this with all the respect in the world. So my point being is that when it comes to a film that big, I don't think it's as much about personal touch as it is a steady hand. And yeah. I think Kugler undeniably has that. I want to move on from here, but I will just say, we all think it's a no-brainer for Marvel to want Kugler for that film. But does Kugler want that film? Yeah. I'm not so sure. Right. All right, let's move on to Lucasfilm, which their presentation was perhaps not quite as robust as Marvel's. They dropped the first trailer for Tales of the Jedi. You guys are both Clone Wars watchers, so I will let y'all take that one. I've never watched it. Oh, I thought you just did. <laughs> uh, no, I've I've only ever seen like the first season when I was like, oh, eight. I thought you just watched that. Okay, B. No, I need to. Oh, all right, B. Go ahead. So I, you know, I was actually epically hungover on Sunday, and so I was very behind on D two three announcements. What I know of Tales of the Jedi, I actually haven't seen that or the Mando trailer yet. I know I need to get on that, but what I what I've uh, you know heard and talked about it already with Star Wars fans, it's an anthology of sorts. You know, mostly still around the prequel era, showing things from from a few different periods. We're gonna get a young Count Dooku and Qui Gon as a Padawan. Like I'm all for that. I'm I think I'm absolutely ready to jump into that. You know, I we talked about it on the show when I was still on it full time. The something like um uh the bad batch like i've just never been that you know in love with the clone but you universe. loved clone wars right yeah 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 but that, that's what i'm saying it's like this is more of the star wars dna that i am attracted to you know okay we're seeing legacy because it has the jedi yeah, that's yeah. the long and short of it so yeah. i'm excited for tales of jedi i still gotta watch the, the mando season three trailer which i'm embarrassed to say I all right do you want to do that now quick while i go pour out a beer <laughs> sure okay I'll watch it too because I haven't seen it. Oh, you guys. This is why I make the document. What the fuck? I was just skipping it because I. There's no excuse for you to not watch the season three trailer for The Mandalorian. I don't want to fucking hear it, Kate. Yeah, Kate, you're full time on this show. You're right. You're right. I have the excuse of like like all day I was, you know, doing paperwork for my new job and I was doing errands for the house and everything. So. All right, on to the season three trailer of The Mandalorian. I'd say it's more of a teaser since I don't think we really get any plot points. I did think it's hilarious how they implicitly assume, oh, everyone's seen Boba Fett. Mm. How fucking insane is that? Like season two ended with Baby Yoda and Mando splitting up. Right. That was the that was the dramatic. <laughs> I forgot about that. That was the dramatic emotional crux of not only the season, but the series. And now in this trailer, they're just like, they don't even acknowledge it. So I find that obvious. I find that arrogant. I find that an overcalculation of Boba Fett. I find that annoying that Boba Fett even existed in the first place. If it was just being used as like a, a bridge between season two and three. As I said off air to you guys, look, Mando outside of Rogue One is the only time that I've ever felt the Star Wars magic. So I am obviously looking forward to season three. I will, however, say similar to Brandon's point about the Bad Batch, I think the inherent appeal of Star Wars is in the Jedi, the Force, Sabres, all that stuff. And I'm sure it's still going to be in season three. Giancarlo Esposito has confirmed he'll be back as Moth. I'm sure we'll see young, creepy Luke pop up at some point. But I think without the implicit, I, I I think w without the direct guardrails of sort of the Baby Yoda development as a Jedi and the threat of the Sith, without Mando, it feels more like Boba to me now, where it's just like, all right, here's your fucking Star Wars show. 
you know, here you go. Mandalorians fighting each other, which like, I don't know if, I don't know how I'm supposed to care about that as a non-Clone Wars watcher, having only been introduced to Bo Katan at the end of season two. So I think it's going to be good, but I think that Star Wars is assuming a lot about the, A, the culture's viewership of Boba and B, the general knowledge of Clone Wars to shift away from Jedi culture this much in season three. What would you have had them do? For- I would have. I w- I think that the that that the connection between Mando and Baby Yoda is the heart of the show. I don't yes. think that that's a mind blowing thing to say. Mm-hmm. Brandon and I, when when he was the full time co host, we talked about how long mm-hmm. is it going to take until they reunite. It was not an mm-hmm. if; it was a when. So I would have preferred the first two or three of Mando season three about Mando realizing that. And going to get him and essentially having the Boba Fett episodes be Mando season three. That is what I would prefer. Now, it feels like almost whereas the Mando felt the the show felt spectacle-esque. Now it just sort of feels like they're going through uh, the motions because do I care about Bo-Katan as the primary antagonist? No, she was enjoyable, but no. So... I know that this is a teaser, but largely my number one feeling is probably underwhelmed. Hmm. B? I was going to say the same exact thing in terms of the Baby Yoda uh, Mando split. Like for them to resolve it so quickly, for them to resolve it in uh, a different show. Yeah. And then for also for them to resolve it in a way, and this is another topic entirely. That goes against everything that Luke would have learned about how uh, emotion and connection actually brings you back from the dark side and is actually really good for you because that's how he redeemed Darth Vader. And then for him to impose those same exact restrictions on Baby Yoda, it just it made no narrative sense given what the character's been through, given what the character's uh, thematic uh, jumping off point and, and, and entire point was. But that's that's a whole different thing. So for them to essentially bridge that so quickly that's a bit of a bummer. I think there was a lot of rich narrative ground they could have mined there. I, I think because I do have a connection to the Mandalorians, I do like the idea of him essentially now focusing on being a unifier of the Mandalorian people and trying to bring that planet's culture and, and the very kind of infrastructure of that planet back from like the brink of extinction. I, I think that's a really cool overall plan. I just don't know how you double back around and fit that in with the remnants of the empire. I'm like, that That seems like you're bending over backwards to just have an excuse for Moff Gideon to show up and stormtroopers to show up because, mm. you know, they're, I know they're, they're eventually going to become the first order, but I don't know for them to care back about Mandalore when there's such bigger problems facing the empire. I, I guess I just don't, see the narrative cohesion. I think Mandalore alone and Bo-Katan and the different subcultures that they have to unite and uh, uh, Din Djarin's inner journey to figure out, okay, what kind of Mandalorian am I? That's all its own thing. You don't need a Moff Gideon and the looming threat of, an, of a depleted empire and all that. You, you can make that its own show for a while. So I guess I feel like they might be trying to do so much too much, but I do think it's cool seeing Carl Weathers in like his mayor's outfit. But didn't we just argue that we'd lose an inherent sense of interest when there's no Jedi Sith storylines in this world? I mean, that's what I'm most attracted to. I don't like the Bad Batch because I'm, I don't really care about the clone troopers that much. These guys I do care about more and mm-hmm. feel are, are compelling enough. 
And we know they're going to probably have another crossover with Ahsoka. We know, uh, you know, Cobb Vanth is probably going to come back. There's enough added value elements where I'm not necessarily saying I, I need that. I'm of the opinion that the season two Luke cameo was really, really constrictive and makes this vast expansive universe feel so damn small circling the same drain over and over. So, you know, you could still have Jedi things. I just don't think it needs to be the same repeatable formula. I, I'm surprised I feel so differently about this than you guys do. I, I get the criticism of the Yoda thing. and I completely actually agree with that. But uh, generally speaking, I think I'm blown away by the scope and scale of this season. This, uh, this teaser looks bigger than yeah. the other two. I mean, it, it looks like a Star Wars movie, which I think Boba Fett struggled to accomplish even looking like a tv show you, you mean um, him walking back and forth between his hut and town hall yeah didn't really exactly. do it for you no and, no the, to that the, point tatooine is is old news mandalore very cool don't care yes. about tatooine anymore yes cool. yes the the grand scale here all the politics and stuff that's what that's the stuff that interests me about star wars uh when you really dig in and it seems like they're really leaning on that uh here and um there's a shot where he goes upside down and baby Yoda begins to fall and he grabs him and pushes him back down. And I'm like, <laughs> I love this. I love this. I know. I know. I love this. I know. It's uh, a they're just the two of them. is just a home run. And I so, like that teaser. They literally said, you're his dad. Like, yes. He's full on daddy vibes now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Daddy Mandel. So uh, I I'm, I'm very excited for this. Uh, I, I think this is the trailer that has excited me most. since like the very first reveal trailer mm. for, for the first Mandalorian season. Um, I, I think uh, this looks very, very, very good. Cool. All right. Let's touch on She-Hulk real quick before we get into a break and then house of the dragon. Uh, I'm going to put it like this. Anything you guys feel like saying about the show? My I, main I like it. Not... Oh, okay. I, li- I like it too. Okay. Do you want to expand on why? or? or... I just want to say I hate fandom and nobody's <laughs> ever, for every franchise, like at a certain point, you just reach a, a point where nobody's pleased by anything at all ever. And it's constant comparisons to what came before. And like, just shut up. If you don't like it, that's cool. I totally respect it. If you do like <laughs> but it, shut the it. fuck up. But like, see, I'm so tired of the discourse. And like, if you don't like She-Hulk, I get it. I'm, that's something I can understand why. It's a very different kind of formula. It's like more of a straightforward sitcom. But like, people are like having culture wars over She-Hulk. Like, <laughs> yeah. Lawyer comedy. I'm like, you guys got to take it down a notch. Oh my God, Professor Hulk is in the rage monster. What am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, but that was, a, that was a direct criticism that Kate and I had. Now, not, yeah. not that we're up in arms about it, but like, no. Really. It is a total nerfing of the whole concept. I, yeah. I don't necessarily agree. Hulk was introduced in the MCU in 2008. The whole point, the whole attraction point that everyone's made a huge deal of of the MCU is that they grow. It's a it's a long running narrative. It's a TV show, not a movie franchise. And so that character would just naturally not be the same as he was when he was first introduced. Now, do I think Rage Hulk is cooler and more enjoyable? Yeah, I do. But it, I, I just don't give a shit that much of like, oh, <laughs> Professor Hulk. He's like. A little bit different. Oh, no. Like, I, I don't care. Yeah, yeah. Let me just say that I don't not like the show. Oh, yeah, I'm, I, not a, I'm not accusing you guys. Yeah, yeah. And I, and we are misogynists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the new post-credit podcast. <laughs> we are misogynists. First uh, guest, Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, for real, I probably, and this is like a huge compliment of a comedy show. I think the humor is my favorite part about it. And in a vacuum of a sitcom comedy show, 
That's great. But from the CGI to the drama to the action, nothing about this show interests me whatsoever. Granted, if I'm supposed to be viewing it as a sitcom, then it's accomplishing its goal. But as a Marvel project, I don't think it is. Now, when Daredevil shows up for the next three weeks, maybe it will. But right now I find myself, and this is sort of what the MCU has done to our brains, right? The sort of, what do you actually want from their product? I think that that's a lot of things that fans struggle with. I don't think that that's a question that they actually ask themselves. I've always kind of known. It's why Guardians and Infinity War and those sort of cosmic, bigger scale projects are the ones that I like most because that is why I watch comic book film. So when you bring it down to a sitcom level, you're not striking the same chords with me as you would a massive comic book film. So when I'm judging it in that light, I'm not going to enjoy it. But as a sitcom, I do enjoy it. I think it's very funny. I think um, Wong's usage is great. I think uh, Madison is a hilarious character. I enjoy the idea of like superheroes needing lawyers, especially in a world where there's that like New York department that fucking takes people's jobs to clean shit up. Like I understand the sitcom part of it, but it's the Marvel part of it that lets me down. To tie in something with gaming here, uh, Call of Duty has a very similar problem where for the longest time it was, you know, World War II, then this modern era. And then people were like, I'm sick of this. You're not doing anything new. And then they went to the future and had like spaceships and shit. People were like, this is not what I want. And then, <laughs> right. like, all right, we'll go back to the other shit that was working. And they're like, it's the same shit. And they just can't <laughs> win. So that's a great comparison, kid. It's, it's so big because it's so encompassing of thousands and tens of millions of people that everyone wants something different from it. And that's how Marvel is. It has reached this ceiling that you cannot appeal to everyone. And so that's why every show is a different genre, right? Yeah. Um, and some work and some don't. But I think this is probably like the most consistent show I have seen. Of the like Marvel I'm enjoying shows. it more than Moon Knight, which yes, is like exactly. a fucking... I am happily tuning into this show because I want to watch it, not because it's a fucking chore that I have to watch it. Uh, yeah, to stay which is how I felt about Moon Knight. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, it's 30 minutes. Cool. I can watch it while I eat lunch and then move on and be like, that was fun. And uh, yeah, like there's some things that don't stick the landing, like uh, some of the action or whatever. But generally speaking, I'm enjoying it all. And um I, I didn't really care for the first episode. I thought that was really weird. It was the worst one. And very heavy-handed. And the way that the show has almost addressed all of my criticisms since mm-hmm. then is great. And yeah. so um, it's not the best thing I've ever seen, And but I, I really think it's one of the better Disney Plus shows for Marvel uh, so far. Fair enough. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, House of the Dragon episode four. All right, and we are back. We were talking about uh, House of the Dragon episode four. Let me see if I should look up the title like a normal podcast host would do. Everybody humps. That's probably the title. <laughs> Seriously, what, what the fuck was it called? <laughs> no, but I mean, that was great. Oh, there we go. King of the Narrow Sea. Cade, you are a few weeks behind, so you can take a back seat, chime in whenever you want. Brandon and I will take over here. Brandon, is this the horniest hour of TV and Game of Thrones ever? It is because uh, I watched my screener, I think Thursday last week, and I immediately texted my Game of Thrones group chat. I'm like, guys, 
this episode is horny as balls. <laughs> and then I, I woke up this morning to a bunch of late Sunday night texts being like, oh, Brandon, you were really right. Like horniest of hornalicious. But conversely, is this the most thronesy episode yet? Yeah, because it's a almost $20 million episode where everybody sat in a room and talked. Yep. Which, boom. Yep. Love it. Yep. And I think that this was this week's House of the Dragon was my favorite by far yet. While I enjoyed Damon's sort of crab feeder battle last week, this was Thrones in its money zone, right? You've got tense conversations, secret plotting, ruthless backstabbing, and of course, Game of Thrones' favorite thing, disgusting incest. This was sort of Thrones in its heyday, right? So we're, and I genuinely do believe that this was the horniest hour of Thrones TV I've ever seen. That is not hyperbole at all. That was my first thought. So what's nice about this show, and while we picked, a, or while we, while I picked a few good weeks to neglect this part of my job, the sort of timeline, the way that they're jumping forward every few years, makes it thus far a very macro show, right? There isn't much micro plotting detail to dive into until this week, I think, because you've got sort of the, while we understood the general framework of this is a show about the Targaryen succession and heir, this week you see the actual sort of, um, like, all right, episode one through three was, was the tree, right? You could see the outside and it's big, but now we could see the roots and how they're starting to grow and spread. So where I want to start is now that we're having a sense of the characters and the world, B, who are you rooting for at this point? Are any of these characters remotely likable? Great question. No, none of them are. And I'm not rooting for any of them. I just <laughs> want to see chaos like I'm a little finger. And so the, the natural answer that I think a lot of people would say is Rhaenyra. Well, I would tell you that Rhaenyra is a very interesting character, but she hasn't done anything honorable. She hasn't stood up for the downtrodden. She hasn't done anything particularly clever or strategic. In fact, she's actually done the opposite and really burned bridges and done things that have compromised her position. Uh, then you've got Viserys, a man who's more or less decent. And but dumb as rocks. Dumb as rocks and <laughs> frankly, killed his wife, you know, without any of her input. So like even with his, you know, soft morality. Wait, hold on though. Do you actually take points against him for that like these are medieval times i, I imagined times, childbirth but... deaths were quite common i know but my man have a conversation with her he doesn't need okay to okay, to okay. all her. right fair enough okay you know like they were they did have a loving marriage like you know just talk to her you okay. know then you've got the small council who outside of uh, uh sir strong is you know all out for themselves and even he's out for himself to a degree you've got damon who's you know a, a very charming psychopath so no, none of these characters are likable. There are no heroes and villains. And if anyone's read the books, I'm not going to go into spoilers. They're worse in the books. And it seems like the show is going to go one of two ways. Either one, over the course of the rest of the first season, they are going to sand some edges and try to create some more, you know, standard heroes. Uh, people will be surprised to know that book Tyrion- Kristen Cole. Yeah, Krista, I mean, Kristen, yeah, but he, we know he's like one of the more minor players, you know, but yeah, but yeah exactly. He did just boink the princess, though. Yeah, that was that was an understandable uh, lapse in judgment. But, you know, but I think some of the show watchers would be surprised to learn that book Tyrion, while admirable in some ways, is still pretty much a fucking villain. Like, it is, you know, does some horrible things. And you saw Game of Thrones really, again, create like unambiguously, he's a hero. 
I think it would be really, really interesting and really, really cool and really actually brave and bold, particularly given the, the safety net of, of the IP, for them to just lean into the book and be like, oh, you thought these guys were bad now. Like, none of them are good. Don't well, that's any of them. That's a great point because I was just going to say, isn't that the catch-22 of the series very core idea that the Targaryens are kind of a fucking mess? Yeah, exactly. And the fact that Viserys continues to praise old Valyria, you know, which is the ancestral home of the Targaryens and the Valerians. Old Valyria was built on slave labor. They tossed slaves into volcanoes. They were horrible people. It was the zenith of society back then. That's true of culture and magic and economy and, and power. But it was built on horribleness, like America times a million. <laughs> So I think that that's a great commentary within itself. And it's also funny that he loves old Valyria. He is the most uh, comfortable and familiar with the Andals way of doing things. And you see Rhaenyra and Damon are like really more Valyrian in their blood. So I, I think that's a great commentary that they can continue to lean into by making everyone continually unlikable and really making this show a, a hardcore succession in which like, oh yeah, all mm. of you are awful but this is kind of representative of what the power player that like just got are. Cade's eyes going. Cade was like, Oh, I like that. <laughs> Cause like in succession, there's not a single likable character, but I cannot right. take my eyes away. Oh, I think that my takeaway from episode four, in terms of this question specifically, who am I quote unquote rooting for? Right. Cause that is storytelling at its soul, right? You're rooting for a hero. That is what every major story, whether it be horror or comedy or action or drama, that is what, propels the story forward a hero that you want to see succeed so the fact that thrones is eschewing that so far is very thrones-esque but i'd also don't think it's sustainable right john snow and danny were the fucking tenants of game of thrones this show is going to need their own john and john snow and danny at some point so my hot take is and especially after they were introduced in episode one when i kid you not i saw this man on screen for one and a half seconds ago he's scheming and despite the fact after that, that he his big move was to offer his daughter to the king and his best friend for marriage and impregnation and all that. I think Otto Hightower is my favorite character. <laughs> like, so none of them are very likable, but within the context of everything we've seen in the last few weeks is Otto marrying his daughter to the king of the world that egregious? Yes. Why? I would say, listen, Otto thus far has not been as nakedly horrible as some of the characters who are dismembering people in the streets of King's Landing. I get that. But he also has no care in the world. I think the show has shown that for Allison's, you know, feelings or well-being. He's cold, frosty, manipulative and, and calculating. But he I, married I, her to the king. It's not like he sold her to slavery. I, it, it, it's the most blessed life a woman could lead. What more does she want? I think very much the point of the show so far, and I think they- Is that they have no say. It's, it's this marriage, even in royalty, is a cell of its own making. And you are stripping someone completely of agency. Of course, yes, there are massive benefits. But at the end of the day, Otto Hightower isn't doing this so his daughter is going to be well taken care of. Otto Hightower is doing this so his family- can advance in the world. and But isn't that what we all do? Not to that extent, no. <laughs> but no. I don't think he's done it overtly, violently, at least as far as we know. And I also genuinely believe him 
when he seems to say and think that Aegon is the path to the least amount of chaos and war, not only do I think he genuinely believes that, I agree with him. I think he believes that everything he's doing is is for a moral reason. I don't. And you will that. also have the context of book knowledge, so you're probably I, like, I don't know much about Otto. Honestly. All right, because I was going to say you're probably just saying, "Hey, dumbass, just wait two weeks until I, you know." I genuinely, honestly, can't remember for the life of me what the fuck happens with Otto. Uh, all right, cool. But go ahead. <laughs> okay. All right. So then, but then to my point, but I think that that is my point that I have found the cast so far so wholly unheroic that he's sort of the one that I find myself, if not rooting for, understanding the most. Yeah, I can understand that. I think at the end of the day, listen, we haven't seen him be so overtly horrible as other than pimping out his daughter, which I still think is bad. But I do think that this man isn't necessarily working for the good of the realm. We saw his older brother put pressure on him to get Aegon on the throne. So let me cut in here, because this was the next thing that I was going to ask. What does Otto actually want? I think he wants high towers to be, you know, more powerful. Right now, the Valerians are the second most powerful family in Westeros. I think obviously he's gunning for that spot. He's been conspiring against them for a long time. He knows driving a schism between him and da- uh, Viserys and Damon advances his position. Uh, I just think at the end of the day, his his motivations aren't as nuanced and complex as some of the other, you know, gray characters we've seen in this world. Which is what King Viserys says to him. Yeah, after Rhaenyra gaslights him. <laughs> Do you get my point, though, or is my take too hot? No, I mean, listen, Otto, until Otto Hightower, like, you know, dismembers somebody, he's, like, above Damon in, in the pecking order. Damon is, is again, a charming psychopath. At least Otto Hightower has some restraint. I still don't think he's a good person, which is, you know, the whole, the whole point. And because in the teaser for next week, they show him telling Alicent, prepare Aegon to be king or there will be war. And he seems very fret and genuinely concerned about that prospect. Who was the Game of Thrones character, uh, the bald one who was shady? Huh? Varies. I get the same vibe from him. He's a shady motherfucker, and some of his methods may be a bit uncouth, but I think in his heart of hearts, he just wants the realm to have peace. That is what I truly believe. I don't know, because he, so there, the high towers are of Old Town, and Old Town's where the Citadel is, where all the Maesters are. So their family is in deep cahoots with the Maesters, and the Maesters are not known for their altruistic spirit. They are known for being, for their arrogance and, and trying to enact their will and what they believe is right throughout the realm through these kind of back channels and manipulations and subtle power plays among the, the families. So I think he's a, a very worthy adversary that you need to watch out for, particularly after this episode, because he's got a chip on his shoulder, because you don't want to take on all of the maesters and and the, the very, very overlooked control they have over your daily lives, sending every raven, you know, com- controlling communication and health and education. Medicine, right? Couldn't they just lie to you and be like, here, this will fix that tummy ache of yours and straight kill your ass? Well, you know, there's, <laughs> also, there's also a lot of theories that the maesters have hired the faceless men to do their bidding in, in across history. So mm. I think that's that book knowledge right there, son. 
I listen. I wouldn't. I don't think the high tower Otto High Tower is a is a moral ethical man. Maybe we'll we'll find find out. Oh, absolutely I, not. I'm just saying contextually against the rest of the characters. I I find myself being like, I think he's got the best point. Moving on to one of what I consider to be. So we talked about Otto. I think he's one of five main characters that we've seen so far. Otto Viserys. Rhaenyra, Alicent, and Damon, who's sort of the inverse Jon Snow, right? He's this sort of stereotypical lead, tall, handsome, or perhaps the most disturbing face I've ever seen on Earth. I, I, I really have not decided yet. Um, good in battle, takes what he wants, but he's a psychopath and he's not very likable. Was the result of what we saw in episode four a result of Damon's well-laid, well-thought-out plans? Or did he just get too horny for his own good and find himself in this place? Did he intentionally try to make Rhaenyra less desirable to take her as a wife so he could consolidate Targaryen power? Because that is that is where I lean. I think that his whole hungover shtick, yes, he's a partier, but I think every step and move that he's made since he came back to King's Landing for the first time in years has been calculated. Yeah, I think it's both. I think the affection between Rhaenyra and Damon is genuine, as, yes. as that is. And but he I, knows that, and he's taking advantage of it. And we also saw his mistress pay off the, the child spy. Who was and yo, of- is that the chick from Devs? Yes, it is. So, okay. uh, Sonia Moon, I, I can't pronounce her name. Yeah, <laughs> but ex Machina and Devs, she's great. So she'll probably have a biggish role. So yeah, so we, you know, we saw her pay off that kid who was the one who informed Otto Hightower. So... The logical conclusion is that Damon set that up, but I also think he's too horny for for his own good in that scene. I, I again, both things can be true. Exactly, I think it's genuine, but also he is playing a a, a different game. So, so his whole return. Do do you think that my point tracks? That his whole return is in an attempt to consolidate Targaryen power with his niece. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he would have had to return anyway because the the conflict was over. So he did have to like go to the king and be like, hey, we won. Here's your, your spoils of war. But this is all part of his his larger overarching narrative and, and goal, I think. All right, and then the last big point that I have here before I see the floor to be, if he has anything else he wants to say, is the big ending of the episode is Maester uh, bringing Rhaenyra sort of a medieval plan B abortion tea. She doesn't look like she's going to take it. As far as we understand, she's going to keep the kid, right? We don't know that she's actually pregnant. I think that was more of a just in case. But, and it's and it's also confirmation that the no, but I but her. but I feel like they did it in the scene where Viserys gives her the blade and he's explaining the song of ice and fire. I think she's taking that to heart and realizing, oh, that could be me. I I, I don't we don't know if she's pregnant yet. I I think. That again, the maester dropping that off is also a, a, a signifier that hey, the king, your father, doesn't believe you and doesn't trust you. Drink that shit. Yeah. And I think also, you know, if she is pregnant, it obviously sets up a, a very interesting sub narrative with Kristen Cole. She's absolutely gonna be pregnant because the the whole point of it is that the two people who fucked her are not well, I, politically I viable. <laughs> oh right, Damon didn't. Damon yeah, didn't. I, some people think he did. I personally don't think he did. And the reason that I even further think that Damon scheme this whole thing is when they're sort of like getting at it, he's the one who starts it, but he's also the one who ends it. And, you know, remember, it wasn't too long ago that uh, I auto suggested that Rhaenyra marry her half brother. Oh, so you think that they're in cahoots, perhaps? 
No, I don't think they're in cahoots. I'm just saying that there are some, you know, the Targaryens are known for odd incest and, right. and yeah. uh, keeping their bloodlines pure. Which is which is what Allison tells her in a much kinder way. She's like, you Targaryens are known for your queer traditions, which is polite code for saying y'all some fucking freaks yeah big time uh you know we here at the post grad pod not to speak uh, uh for you guys since i'm no longer a full-time co-host but we we don't endorse incest yes no don't, you can speak for me there you can speak for me there i don't know man Cade's from uh the cornfields we don't know what's going on out we there. do no, Cade, i'm just crazy kidding crazy shit out here you have no idea what um, goes on in those cornfields <laughs> b any final house of the dragon thoughts yeah, I mean, I, I would like to, you know, we don't get this necessarily from the context of the show, but it's not a spoiler. Damon and Viserys' parents died when Damon was really, really young. So he looks at Viserys <laughs> more as a father figure than mm. a brother, which partly explains his, his outburst and desire for attention. And more importantly, his need, his pathological need for inheritance, you know, quote unquote. And so I, I think it's really, really interesting how they set up that dynamic. And, and again, like I said before, how they show that Damon and and uh, Rhaenyra, who are current dragon riders, who do speak most of their language to each other in Valyrian, are, are really more in touch with the Targaryen ancestral roots than Viserys, who is playing with these models and, and claiming that he, he is so in awe of, of what came before. But really, you know, he drops the toy in a couple episodes ago and he says seven hells which is actually Westerosi slang. It's not Valyrian. And he, he never speaks in Valyrian. It doesn't even look like he, he can speak the language. So it's so interesting that he's kind of more acclimated to the Andal Westerosi way of things. And we've seen that, you know, being somewhat of a good man and, and trying to do the right thing, but also never making the right political move. <laughs> the throne is physically rejecting him. I mean, he, he's cut, he's amputated, he's infected. Oh, my guy is rotting from the inside out. Exactly, because leadership and, and the throne is literally taking its toll on him. So it really does enhance the entire point of the show is, okay, who is going to be the king or queen next? Because this dude ain't cutting it. And so I, I just think they've done a really good job at uh, actualizing and literalizing that kind of metaphor throughout. And I just think the show has been damn good. Really, mm. really, really impressed. Mm. Did you, ex- are you surprised? No, because remember we, you and I were like, we don't care if Game of Thrones ended poorly. This is a completely different creative team. It's HBO. It's got a huge budget. Like chances are, it's going to be pretty good. And it right. came out and it's been pretty darn good. Yeah. And yeah. as much as I may despise George R.R. R. Martin, because he's never going to finish those books, having him deeply involved with the show is a good idea. Yeah. Cade, I, you know, I'm just curious. Are you, and I mean this in the non, in the most non-sarcastic way possible. Are you not a fantasy guy? Like, what do you think the disconnect is between you and latching on to not just this show, but Thrones, Lord of the Rings, and this genre in general? You're you're on the money. Uh, the, I'm very particular about my fantasy stuff. And I think part, part of it is also when I do find something I like, I want to give it the time. Like, and it, it's, I need to be in a very specific mood to sit down, absorb all of the glossary you know that they have laid out for me and and that's understand it uh, let and, me just say that's why i like thrones i find yeah. i found the lord of the rings films and this new show perhaps even much more dense whereas thrones once you get over that first season hump mm-hmm. i find it very accessible okay that's good to know uh but yes uh, it's 
uh, I, I really, what I have seen this show, I, I really like it. And so I do plan to, I'll probably be caught up by the next time we, okay. we talk. Cool. Uh, but uh, yeah, like fantasy has always been so difficult for me. Uh, it, it, it comes off if you do it wrong, very generic. Like it, it just looks mm, like, yeah. you know, looks something like that shit could, sounds like shit. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's indistinguishable from everything else. Right. Yeah. And this, this like, show is uh, shadow and bone, which got yeah. renewed. What, for I don't know season. what the fuck that one even of, is. One of the worst <laughs> things I've ever seen. Sorry, Netflix. <laughs> no, but yeah. So, you know, outside of like some video games, like Skyrim and stuff, like I, I generally do not. The Witcher. Yeah. Do you watch that show? I don't watch the show, but I play the wow. games. So yeah. you really have a barrier up because I'm sure you played the game. Yes, yes, and That's the games are great. And I don't That's know, it's uh, it's just hard. It's just I do difficult. know what you mean, though. It where if if they don't walk that tightrope right, it turns into shtick and yeah. schlock and parody. It All can, right, it can be hard to follow. Uh, B, final thoughts. Is that it? I like sci-fi more than fantasy, but mm-hmm. I still like a good fantasy. And like I remember the Lord, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy came out. And like I was, I was 2003. I was 11 when Return of the King came out. And like I'm sitting there with two and a half hours left in this movie <laughs> after an hour, and I'm like, dude, get me out of here. <laughs> it's not that I hated it. I was just like, it's so, so too much. But through cultural osmosis, through uh, the years, and going back with friends who are deep Lord of the Rings fans and watching extended editions and kind of going down some of those YouTube rabbit holes, I've really, really come to enjoy and like it a lot. So fantasy has grown on me, but you guys are so right. Like if it doesn't get you right from the beginning, it's over. It's done. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I hate everything about this. Let me just give out a freebie to the folks at Apple, because I know that they need it. <laughs> Buy Stephen King's gunslinger. Psst. <laughs> is that a Western? Or what is you that? like that one, B? Yeah, you know the Dark Tower series is oh. one of my favorite. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's the Dark Tower series. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's epic. I read the original four at the time, Game of Thrones book and the Dark Tower series back to back in high school. So uh, I was just like, my mind. Wow, you must have been rolling in pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> All right, y'all. Uh, next up, we have an interview with Peter Son, who is the a longtime animator at Pixar who's worked on basically every iconic film they've had from Ratatouille to Wally to Up. He is also the director of The Good Dinosaur and their Elemental. So stick around for that. Oh, oh hell, hell yeah. Bronx, right? So yeah, what are you, you going to judge me for the Yankees love? Like, look, my okay, wait, my father couldn't afford Yankees tickets, even though we were lived there at the time. Like, Yankees, even in the '80s, were more expensive than the Mets, and so we always went to the Mets. Like, my my childhood was Gary Carter and Daryl Strawberry for for dang sure. Uh, oh um, yeah, yeah. But my my life in the Bronx was only till I was eight or nine, and then we moved to New Rochelle, which is where we as uh, when I was eight. Or ten is when I really started going to Shea Stadium, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I miss Shea. My dad claims that he was at the '86 Game Six against the Sox, where oh I my god! So he swears, right? But that's sort of one of those stories that I feel like everyone in New York at the time was there. 
you know? But I take him for his word for it. <laughs> but I like that you don't believe it. There's a portion of you that don't believe it. That's so funny. Because it's like, okay, you know. All right. Let, let's get uh, started here. Folks, today I am joined by Peter Sonnen, a prolific animator, voice actor, and director that has worked on projects such as The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, Wally, Up, Luca, Lightyear, and Pixar's upcoming film, Elemental, which he is also directing. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Eric. Thank you very so much. Let me start by saying that I am an absolute sucker for space films. I think it's my favorite genre. And then I think beyond that, romant, what I call romantic sci-fi is my favorite sub-genre, which I think are yeah. movies that use sci-fi constructs to tell what are emotional stories. So I was quite excited for Lightyear, given all of the sort of genre tropes that I enjoy. And it yeah. lived up to my hype. So what I want to start with is, what were some of your favorite sci-fi homages in the film? I personally love the interstellar-like time construct and also yeah. the Eric Derek robots, which reminded <laughs> yeah. me of TARS. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I love that you know that stuff. Look, uh, I'm a huge fan of Aliens, um, uh, James Cameron's, uh, the sequel to Ridley Scott's film. And... Uh, um, um, the, the, the corporal uh, um, um, tells Sigourney Weaver in that movie, you know, because Sigourney Weaver is using the loader to move these giant missiles. And he's like, and she says, where do you want it? And the corporal is just like, Bay 12, please. And uh, in Lightyear, if you look for it, one of the bays is literally Bay 12 PLZ. Uh, that, that's my favorite one in there. So what I'm, I'm curious about is that whereas most Pixar films sort of feel like a genre unto themselves, Lightyear is very much a sci-fi film. Yeah. Is making more genre-specific films something we could expect from Pixar down the road? Or if not, what did you enjoy most about working within the framework of this genre? Um, uh, man, that's a great question, Eric. First of all, I feel like it's always uh, director-driven, meaning if another director wants to pitch something uh, as specific as the sci-fi genre, like the Angus had, I'm sure that if the idea is great enough, it'll it'll move through. So there isn't like, oh, we're gonna just we we have these many genre things to do. It's really what um, the, the 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 team behind the idea wanted it to feel like, right? And uh, Angus really loved sci-fi, just like you're talking about, Eric. All of all of all of the the world between, you know, like. Doctor Who and Blade Runner and all of the 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 the, the Star Wars love that's in it, um, um, it's because he loves it. Like he genuinely can break down. Like he's you know his nerd level is insane in terms of the frames and imagery that he's seen, and so that that's one aspect of it. To the to the uh, what was the second part of it, Eric? Was it oh, uh, so? What did you enjoy most about having sort of a defined genre to work in? Yeah, that's great. And then so in in. In trying to find socks, it was how does this character fit into that genre uh, for me and the, the the world of protocol droids from like Star Wars or like androids from Blade Runner or Star Trek uh, was the, the beginning for me and then working with Angus to find who socks was was the joy you know like a, yeah. I have a huge love for data from Star Trek next generation so there's a little bit of his sort of like you know uh, yes captain you know uh, we you know like warp 2 has been hit you know and so there's a little ingredient of that there's a little bit of the c3po protocol droid there's a little bit of the sort of the emotionality of r2 even though that's beats and boops uh and and then trying to find the the, the friend side to him and uh um but 
all sort of working within Angus's love of sci-fi and wh where my sci-fi sort of connects with him. And that was really fun. So you sort of touched on something that I was going to ask. You're involved in the conceptualization of these characters' quirks? Oh, uh, yes. And not in a huge way. I mean, like, where there's room for, like, meow, 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 or, like, beep poops. There was little things that I would add. Um, um, but in terms of when he would go, like, military versus when he would go with as a, as a, as a more friendly sort of friend, um, well, there were shifts that could do. And then there was some improv that happened here and there. But it was mostly Jason and Angus, you know, following their lead on it. Yeah, so... This is an animated film, and I was amazed by the way it tackles it headfirst. It has concepts like the theory of relativity and yeah. alternate selves. Soul was about life and death. Your upcoming film, Elemental, is going to be about love. Is yeah. Pixar intentionally becoming more overt in the way that they're trying to challenge and educate the heart, hearts and minds of kids? No, it's always the, always the intent is, is trying to find something universal that we can all connect to. Um, the, the there is there's never been like an agenda to like try to teach anything or it's just really about like you know um, um, uh, for for Eng Angus and Buzz like Buzz goes through a real failure in the beginning of that when you boil the character down you know and uh, his regret of letting the uh, of, of failing the mission and then how that sort of haunts him throughout the movie which I feel like for me when I was watching the movie. I've been through that before. I, having big failures and, and trying to get up from those are quite difficult. And uh, having the support of friends and what changes you need to go through was what I got out of it. Even though it had the clothes of the sci-fi on it when it boiled it down to it, that it was just a universal thing. And I feel like a lot of the movies, even like Soul, which does have a real metaphysical concept to it, it's still about a person making choices in their life about like, is jazz all that I am, you know, is, is that all that is? And for us, you know, that, that sort of tie, you know what I mean? Yeah, I just asked because, you know, and I'll move on to Elemental a bit here. Pixar has tackled love before. You think about yes. Wally and Up. But to me, yeah. those were more abstract when it comes to kids. Wally yeah. is a robot. Carl is an old man. So it's yeah. sort of above their heads. Yeah. Elemental, based on the synopsis that I heard this weekend, yeah. seems like it's going to be directly tackling the topic of romantic love that yeah. to me feels more um whereas i feel like the pixar sub it was very big on subtext now i just feel like you guys are being more direct about the themes that you're yeah. trying to confront yeah I, th I think a big part of the visual of fire and water falling in love was the hook but ultimately there are other layers throughout the film that have been important to me like like my parents coming to New York for the first time, like those were all stories that I heard as a kid. The idea of, of, of immigrants coming to a new land was a big part of, of this film. And so what, it, what does it mean uh, uh, to appreciate the sacrifices that our parents have made? You know what I mean, Eric? And like, as when I was a kid, I didn't really understand any of it. My parents would tell me all these crazy stories of like, you know, going to, you know, um, um, my father worked at Midtown as a pretzel guy, you know, in the 70s in one of those carts. And like the crazy stories that he would t tell when I was a kid, I'd be like, you know, like laugh it off or roll my eyes at it. But as I got older and had kids, did those stories become more emotional to me? My guy, oh my God, you didn't know the language. You had no money and you could only pay rent for a week at that time. Like, what were you going to do? Like, I slept on a park bench. You slept on a park bench in central. What like that's so. And so I would become more appreciative. And so what is that kind of love, you know? And then so uh, the, the idea of the the on the sort of the on the nose love between the, the, the 
fire and water is one layer that hopefully starts to begin other layers of what it means to be grateful and under and, and, and understanding identity in that way. And like, look, uh, uh, when I was, you know, growing up, my grandmother's dying words were marry Korean. And I didn't, I married an Italian lady from California, you know, and uh, this concept of like this mix and how does that form who you are? How does that, how does the family react? So that, so it is about love, but it's also, there, there's several layers connected to it as well. You, you know what I mean? It sounds like it's going to be a very personal film for you. Yeah, yeah, as, as much as, you know, elements can be, but th there's definitely personal themes going through yeah. it, you know. I'm curious, since we touched on Lightyear having sort of direct sci-fi homages, is there any movies in your mind's eye that you're gonna, um, that inspired Elemental? Oh my God, there's so many movies. There's so many romance movies. There's so many family dramas. There's so many New York movies, you know, like, you know, the big city movies that I've seen, you know, and, and so, you know, so be, because we want to make the movie, you know, really big, there, there's so many subplots and layers to it that, you know, all stem from the movies that we've grown up on, you know, and then uh, like, like the, like my favorite movies that they, that they have, that it's almost like, it's like a small, like independent story, but it's got a big coat of a big movie, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that, so that big movie has aspects of it that you wouldn't just get in, like like a romantic movie. You know what I mean? And then there's there's parts of the family drama films that you you know like the difference between Godfather Two and the first Godfather, or even Godfather, uh, the first Godfather and My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You know, like that, and what like the fam when when the the this next generation, the choices that they make that are different from the first generation. Like Godfather 2 is like one of my favorite movies of all time. And that that opening scene of Vito coming into Ellis Island for the first time. All oh, I, I just, hot take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think of my father all the time of, you know, stepping off the plane for the first time in like 1969 in New York. And that world of like what New York was, what a city was, what America was. And then like, to this world of elements, like, I'm not trying to make it exact, but those feelings that you get from that movie, that Godfather 2 is not a romance movie, but it is, there is a, there is an aspect of it, of a love story of like, uh, of, of, of the first one in particular, of a son loving their father and the choices that they would make to take over something like that. Again, we're not doing a gangster movie at all. I'm just saying that like, I was uh, I was just going to say, is the headline to grab from this? Elemental director says the film will be Pixar's Godfather 2. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. Uh, but all I'm saying is that, like, uh, um, um, we've, we've, we're dipping into a lot of different aspects of, of, of different movies that, uh, you know, I really love. So I am from New York as well. And from what I understand about the plot, there are going to be different. There's going to be a water area and culture and land and and fire yeah. and water land air fire all right that's four yeah. are they going to correspond to any real life neighborhoods or boroughs like is ice gonna be wall street is <laughs> fire gonna be queens you know like do you are, are you sort of conceptualizing in that sense no but there are like bridges and like and like you know like the, the rivers that go through this area um, that will be reminiscent, but we're, you know, we've, because we, the, the thing that we wanted to do was to make like water a big part of the world, you know, like what are cities that have a lot of water near them, you know what I mean? And so we looked at a lot of different cities to grab that, but, you know, the New Yorker in me is definitely going to honor, you know, like a, what a skyscraper could be or what like, 
you know, a Manhattan bridge is next to Chinatown or what little Italy is next to Soho. You know what I mean? Like, but there, there, there's no, there's no real one-to-one -to, -one to anything though. Yeah. So let me ask you now, this is your, the second film that you directed for Pixar. What lessons did you learn from the good dinosaur that you're taking into this film? And how can we expect to see that bear itself out in the film itself? um the the lessons it's very interesting like um the the first movie you know was tougher for me because there was director change and uh, um the the speed at which we had to make the movie uh, uh was hard but at the same time it really showed the studio um um, um you know the support that we received on that like everyone dropped what they were doing to help finish this film and this all there's a real emotional sort of side to this that I'm so proud of, you know. Mm -hmm. um, um, but it was also trying to honor the original conceit uh, done by my friend Bob Peterson and trying to, his original pitch of this boy and dog story that was being flipped was something that I was trying to honor, you know. And uh, yeah. that story has a character that um, loses their father. And uh, um, I hadn't lost my father. I have now, since then, lost both my parents. And so there's a different truthfulness that can come out of it that I feel like we did hit on in Dino, but I feel like there was a maturity, you know, like not that there's, you know, grief in Elemental in that way, but um, um, what it means to have something personal in something was a lot of lessons for me uh, in terms of moving forward into um, um, this story of, uh, seemingly personal but trying to understand like no no this is trying to make these characters come alive on their own i don't want an autobiography i just want these characters to live on their own and the story to be its own thing and uh but the, that 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 the, the the speed at which dino was made this is the opposite i feel like we would have made eight dinos by the time this movie is going to be done you know and so there there's 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 more um uh time to um um think about these different layers than there was on Dino. And so that, that's been the biggest thing. Gotcha. So not only did I catch you just days after the first look at Elemental was released, but I'm also catching you a few days after Wally became the first film to be added to the Criterion collection. So congrats on that. Personally, <laughs> it's my favorite Pixar film of all time. Okay. Right on. Now I don't understand. I mean, I, I I do understand that you worked on it. If you want to touch on what your role on the film was, that'd be great. Yeah. But I like to ask people when I feel when I when they work on something that I think is generally considered great, I like knowing at what point they realize that. So at what point during production, if at all, did the Wally team realize, whoa, we have a masterpiece on our hands here? Yeah, yeah. So um, Andrew, I got to work on with Andrew on Finding Nemo. That was the first movie that I had worked on Pixar. And then he invited me, Ronnie Del Carmen and Nate Stanton, three other story artists to help him develop that that film uh, uh, with Ralph Eggleston, um, the production designer. And uh, um, what was interesting about it was that, you know, Andrew immediately said, like, I don't want any dialogue in the opening of this movie. And I know you guys can, you know, board this stuff out with some animation in it. And so that that was the first sort of step into the world. And he had very clear ideas of 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 the tone that he wanted. And then so uh, um, Ronnie, me and Nate boarded that whole act one by ourselves that didn't have any dialogue. And we were trying to sell a character just through posing. Uh, Andrew had this idea of binoculars. He kept having these binoculars and he kept 
tilting them and you're like, is, doesn't that create empathy? And so that was like one of the few tools that we had. And so That's like, amazing, I remember, Peter. That's no, I remember clearly going to like a Giants game with him and he had his binoculars going like, and he was just like, look, check this out. And I'm like, oh my God. And he would move these things and like, you know, it's like, yeah, this is like curious. This is sort of like empathetic. This is wonder. And so there was a lot of things that we got from that, that when we started boarding, you know, we were trying to emphasize that in the boards. And then when Ronnie did these boards of, of when um, Wally sees Eve for the first time, you know, he blew, Ronnie blew us away. You know, it was a small room. It was just like the three or four of us looking at these boards that he had done of like this, like somewhat like a practical machine that comes out searching for stuff. And then there was a moment of freedom where her job was done and then she just took off and it was surprising. And you're like, wait, what? And if you ever see the drawings, well, hopefully in this Criterion edition that you're talking about, they have those drawings in there of that first time. And that's when I saw Ronnie's boards, I remember like, whoa, I am feeling the crap out of this just in boards. And I feel like this is going to be something cool. I didn't think that it was going to be as what everyone else thought about it, but I just thought like, oh, this feels different, you know? You know, and I have you seen the artwork for the- Yes, yes, the cover. Yeah, it's beautiful. Incredible. I never noticed some of the similarities between the pieces of trash and like the robot's looks. I was amazed. Yeah, the yeah, Eve is a garbage can, a broken light inside of it. I was like, holy shit, that blows my mind. Yeah, that was all Andrew. That was all I understand. That was That's the, the, incredible. So why do you think that Wally has created such a legacy? Because I think that there's a general consensus that, you know, avant-garde silent film starting aside, this seemed to reach a level of emotional connectivity that I, I'm sure all Pixar films strive to do, but Wally, I mean, I, you know, I'm a grown ass man and that film still gives <laughs> me chills. So I'm just curious, why do you think that that film has created such an iconic legacy? <clears throat> I, I, it's such a big question, Eric. I, I, I think the only thing that I remember that I can connect to this question is at the time when we were making it, um, I mean, all those Pixar stories have its, you know, like ups and downs. As we were making it, um, I didn't realize all the subtext that Andrew was doing about environmentalism in the film. And uh, as, it, as it was being evolved, I got pulled onto another show um, by the time it was, you know, the, in the middle of that movie. And then as they were finishing the rest of it off, um, that, that note got stronger. And so when I finally saw the finished film, I remember feeling like, oh, the timing of this movie and the message and the timing of when it's being released, there was some sort of like zeitgeist about the environment and what this film was trying to say about, about you know, where we're all headed. And I, I think because that it has such a global big idea to it that not all of the Pixar movies have, that it's literally like trash plan in the beginning. This is where we could be heading. You know, it's making a statement in that way. That's the only thing that I can connect, Eric, that could be why it's so long lasting is because we're still dealing with the same issues, you know? Well, when I say congrats on that film being added to Criterion, I truly mean it because there is no Pixar film more worthy of that distinction. I hope your next film is half as successful as that one was. I thank you for your time, Peter, and all the work that you put into this fantastic genre. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you, man. Same here, man. Good yeah, luck. Yeah, go Mets. Yep, thank, thank you. Thank you, sir.
All right, I want to thank Peter San for joining me today. That was a lovely discussion. I hope you all enjoyed that little tidbit about Wally as much as I did. B, I will send you the video when I get it, but basically explained to me that they came up with the idea at a Giants game. Your Giants game, right? Because they were watching through binoculars and yeah. one of his friends and colleagues like bent it down. He's like, doesn't this look like an empathetic face? How fucking amazing is that? Huh. I, I love when the most accidental real world things inspire the coolest entertainment. <laughs> I know. And I actually caught Peter at a great time because not only did Disney, well, not confirm, but show off a first look, but Wally last week became the first Pixar film to ever be added to the Criterion collection. What? Really? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, Kate, if you go on my page, I retweeted the uh, film's artwork, and I cannot think of a Pixar film or an animated film more worthy of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a very artful and thoughtful movie. I, I watched it when I was, you know, when it came out when I was pretty little, and uh, I remember re-watching it later and just being like, wow, this is very moving. And, and that imagery of all the fat people sitting in their chairs has never left my brain. Yeah. <laughs> all right, y'all. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show. Make sure to follow Brandon at great underscore Caspi. Keep your eyes posted for all of his new great work coming at Parrot Analytics and potentially more appearances on the Postgrad podcast. Who knows? Make sure to follow Cade, my wonderful co-host at Cade underscore Onder. Follow me at Eric Italiano. Follow the podcast at Postgrad Pod. Leave us a review. Spotify has stars. Apple has reviews. Do them both. We'll see y'all next week. It's been a kind of a dead movie month. But we've got Andor coming up. We've got Amsterdam coming up. We've got... My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. Thrones coming up. We've got a lot of shit coming up to close out the year, and I can't wait to discuss it with y'all. All right, boys. Peace. <laughs>